Amen. Well, there's no O-Kids this morning, so kids, we're honored to have you with us this morning. We're going to keep chugging along in our study of the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to talk about Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life of the party. Um, In preparation for the sermon, uh, our one-year-old Lucy partied all night long, so Brandy and I are kind of dragging this morning. Um, if you've got a bulletin on the back, this long passage, we're going to get through all of it. So you'll be able to follow along with me and we'll have it on the screen also, but I'm going to pray to begin our time this morning. Holy God, you are Lord of all creation and we need you. I pray that you would reveal yourself to us through your word and reveal to us our need for you. Help us to hear your kind, gentle call to follow you this morning. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So some of you might know, uh, for a long time, I was in a touring band called Cool Hand Luke. And when you're on a big tour, you usually have a laminate. Um, And the laminate is basically, it's got... Uh, like the tour poster on one side and the tour dates on the other side. And it's just a little rectangle and you keep it around your neck or I always kept it on my keychain. And it basically just lets the people at the venues, security and whatnot, know you're with the band or you're with the crew. So you can kind of walk around freely backstage without getting hassled. And most of the time, uh, so I imagine most of you haven't heard of Cool Hand Luke. So most of the time when we are on tours big enough to need passes, it's because we are opening for someone bigger. But occasionally we would headline a tour and have our own laminate passes. And we usually played venues that it honestly didn't matter whether you had them or not. So I didn't always remember to have mine on me. So one night we were headlining a show, and right before time for us to go on, I went out to our van to kind of like focus and warm my voice up and pray and do those sorts of things. And then when I went to go back in the stage door, lo and behold, I don't have my tour laminate. And there's a security guy there who is not trying to hear it. And so we sometimes played secular venues and bars and things like that. And because we were Christians, we always thought we were here to serve them, not to be served by them. So we tried to be kind and courteous. And so I'm trying to keep my cool, but I'm explaining to him, this show isn't going to happen if you don't let me in the door. And there's literally a tour poster there. And I'm trying not to sound like a conceited rock star, but I'm like, that picture right there, that's me. That's me on the poster right there. And he still wouldn't let me in. It ended up being fine because I just called the guys in my band and they let me in the door and everything worked out all right. But I have to think, if, if I'm this upset and feel this entitled, and I got to tell you, saying I'm Mark Nix from Cool Hand Luke doesn't get me in any doors, not even at my own concert. But if I'm that entitled... <laughs> about that, imagine what it would be like if you were the son of God and the Lord of all creation and you step into your creation and they don't recognize you. 
And that's what's happening over and over and over again in Mark. That's what we're going to see today. And so as we, as we look at this passage, there's going to be four short narratives or four stories, and we're going to go through all of them, but we're going to spend the most time on the first one because it kind of sets up the others. But we're going to see how Jesus handled it, and we're going to see how Mark will reveal to us again by Jesus' words and his actions who Jesus really is. So uh, read with me Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. It says... He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So we see here first that Jesus went out again beside the sea to teach. And the sea it's talking about here is the Sea of Galilee in the region of Galilee. And we've got a map of it behind us here, or behind me. It's in front of you. Um, So if you look um, on the northwest kind of side of the Sea of Galilee is Capernaum. And that was Jesus' sort of home base where he probably had a house, and there was a synagogue there. And if you keep hearing that word synagogue and you're not sure what it means, basically they're like 60 or seven mile, 70 miles from the temple in Jerusalem. So since everyone couldn't go to the temple all of the time, most Jewish communities would have a local synagogue where there would be scrolls and there would be teachers and things like that. So the big one was in Capernaum. And last week, Joe preached on Jesus healing a leper. And even though Jesus told the leper not to tell anyone, the leper told lots of people. And I think if you get healed by the Son of God, you can't help but go tell people, right? But because he told people, in Mark 1:45, it says Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places. So today, rather than teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum, Jesus is out by the sea. And it says, as he passed by, he saw Levi the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. Now, uh, I learned all kinds of fascinating things about Levi, and I want to tell them all, but I don't have time, but I'm going to tell you this one cool little tidbit. In the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew tells this same story, but instead of calling the tax collector Levi, Matthew calls the tax collector Matthew. So a lot of Bible scholars believe that Levi and Matthew are actually the same person. And if that's the case, it probably would have been that Levi was his birth name, but he took on Matthew as a Christian name once he became an apostle of Jesus, kind of like Simon became Peter. Um, And if you think about it, 
it would kind of make sense if this was Matthew, because Mark has just told us how Peter, Andrew, James, and John, for the apostles, became disciples of Jesus. And now he's telling us how this guy Levi becomes a disciple of Jesus. So we can't know for sure, but it might be Matthew, the apostle. Um, But one thing that we do know for sure is that Levi was a tax collector. And I want you to think, do you imagine that there's anyone in history who has liked a tax collector? Probably not. Uh, The Beatles had more money than they could count, and they still wrote a song about tax collectors called Tax Man. It's a good song. Um, But it was no different in Levi's days. They did not like tax collectors, but it was probably even a bit more extreme than it is for us today. See, it's more than likely that Levi was a toll collector for Herod Antipas. And Herod wasn't actually a king, but sometimes he's called King Herod. But he was the ruler of the region of Galilee. And as people traveled uh, from one region to another, they would have to pay tolls. So Capernaum is kind of a border town close to the Jordan River. That little line that goes north of the Sea of Galilee is the Jordan River. And on the other side of that is a different region. So when people were traveling west and they crossed the Jordan, they would have to pay a toll to enter the region. And the Jews did not like the Herodian family. So Herod Antipas is the son of Herod the Great, who actually wasn't so great. Herod the Great is the king who wanted to have all the male babies in Bethlehem murdered when Jesus was little. Herod Antipas is his son. So the Jews didn't like the Herodian family because even though they were technically Jews, they were in cahoots with Rome. And Rome was seen as the oppressor. And so the Herodian family was kind of seen as traitors. And to work as a tax collector meant you worked for Herod. And this doesn't necessarily mean that Levi was pro-Herod. It could have just been a job for him. But nonetheless, being a tax collector, it represented a lot of things that the Jews did not like, namely taxes and oppression. So when Jesus comes, the mere fact that Jesus isn't angry at Levi is probably refreshing. And instead, Jesus said to Levi, follow me. Just two words. It's the same thing that Jesus said to Peter and Andrew when he called them to be his disciples. And there's a lot packed into those two words. And you have to wonder, was there more conversation and Mark's just condensing this conversation or did literally a guy just walk up and say, follow me? And he was like, okay. Um, We don't get to know Levi's backstory, but we do know something about rabbis and disciples in Jesus' time. And I'm going to tell you about that briefly because I think it, it sheds a new light on this. Rabbis were teachers of the scriptures. And for them, that would have been the Old Testament. And in Galilee, boys and girls, when they were about five, they would go to the synagogue to school to learn under a rabbi. And they would be taught the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. And when I say they were taught them, I mean they literally memorized them. When they were about 12 or 13, most girls would leave school and go home and kind of uh, study under their mom and learn how to manage the house. And the majority of boys also would leave school and go and learn their father's trade. 
But some of the best students continued their studies at sort of like a secondary school, and they would keep studying under the rabbi there in the local synagogue. And after that, most, the most outstanding students would seek permission to study under a rabbi who was a famous traveling rabbi. And that would usually mean they would have to leave home to travel with him. If you followed a rabbi, followers of a rabbi were called Talmudim in Hebrew, but the word that we know it as is disciples. And it was said that disciples would follow in the dust of the rabbi. And what that means is the disciples would follow the rabbi so closely that as he walked and he kicked the dust up, it would go on the disciples. So parents would seek out the best rabbi for their children, much like parents seek out a good school for us, but most were rejected. Only a few got to actually be disciples. And when a student would ask to be a disciple, the request would be, Rabbi, may I follow you? And if the rabbi found him acceptable, the reply would be, come follow me. Do you see the significance? It's interesting that Rabbi Jesus flips the script. In John 15, 16, Jesus says to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you. So it was very significant when a traveling rabbi who's gaining fame walks up to Levi and says, follow me. And then in verse 14, we read that indeed Levi rose and followed him. And it seems that just like Peter and Andrew left their boats behind and their old life behind, Levi left it all to follow Jesus also. And this morning, Rabbi Jesus may be calling to you too. And I want you to think about how you would answer him. Verse 15 It says, and as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Now, the Greek here literally says his house, and it doesn't specify whether that means Levi's house or Jesus' house. And my guess is as you're reading this, you imagined it being one or the other. But it's possible, given that Jesus lived in Capernaum, and Levi followed him, that they may actually be in Jesus' house, which is crazy to think about going to Jesus' house for dinner. Isn't that a weird thought? But it's also weird if it ends up being Levi's house because basically that means Levi's like, Jesus, come to my house for dinner, and then all the disciples that are following Jesus just roll up in Levi's house too. Because it says that there are many who are following him. So it's kind of a weird scene, whatever it is. But it says Jesus reclined at table, and so did the other folks. So in those days, uh, both in the Jewish and the Roman culture, the tables were very low to the ground, and they, uh, they didn't sit in chairs. They sat um, kind of laying on their left side, propped on their left elbow, and they would eat with their right hand. That's what reclining at table means. And so this kind of sharing a meal insinuated trust and friendship and intimacy. If you think about it, you're, you're sitting very close to one another. And if people are your enemies, you can't really get up and fight when you're all laying on the ground. 
So it basically means Jesus is sharing an intimate, friendly meal with sinners and tax collectors. And scholars say that this posture was most often taken at feast. So it's like a dinner party with tax collectors and sinners. And Mark was probably using the term sinners the way the Pharisees would have. Sinners would mean people who are Jewish ethnically, but they didn't really keep the laws. They didn't really observe the Sabbath or make the sacrifices or do the things that devout Jews did. But also at the party, you've got the ultimate party poopers. You've got the scribes of the Pharisees. So scribes had an extensive knowledge of the law. And when I say the law, that means both the law in terms of the Old Testament law, but also the law of the land. Every village had at least one scribe, and these were the people that wrote uh, marriage certificates and uh, certificates for the sale of land and things like that. But apparently, these scribes were also Pharisees. Now, you need to know who the Pharisees are because they're just going to keep showing up. So the Pharisees were a sect of Judaism. If you think about it this way, Presbyterians and Methodists and Baptists, we're all Christians, but there's just different denominations within Christianity. The Pharisees were kind of like a denomination of Judaism, and they were seen as the spiritual authorities and the spiritual elite because they had vast knowledge of the scriptures and they were all about keeping the laws. And the Pharisees also were all about passing on their oral laws, which were kind of like additional laws that they would put on top of God's laws to say like, oh, if I'm not supposed to like drink from that water bottle, then I can't even get within three feet of that water bottle. See what I'm saying? So the Pharisees avoided contact with tax collectors and sinners basically because the same way in Joe's sermon last week, the leper was seen as unclean and people didn't want to get near them. They saw tax collectors and sinners as spiritually unclean, and they basically thought they were better than them, so they didn't want to party with them. And listen to what they say in verse 16 and 17. The scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. See, the Pharisees are kind of whispering around and they don't confront Jesus directly. They talk to his disciples, but Jesus just calls them out on it. And I love what he says. It's great because, see, these guys are experts of the scripture. They probably have most of the Old Testament memorized, including Psalm 53, which says, None is righteous. No, not one. But the Pharisees think they're righteous because they keep all their laws. They think they have no need of a physician, but really they're like a stubborn old man that has an alligator like clamped onto his leg and he's like, I'm fine. I'm just going to walk it off. I don't need a doctor. (laughs) But what's more significant It's not what this passage tells us about the Pharisees. It's what it tells us about Jesus. Because he's come to call the sick and the sinners and the despised. And he's come to throw a feast in their honor. 
Nobody expected the Messiah to throw a feast for sinners. So why eat with sinners? That's the least of what Jesus will do for these sinners. He's going to allow the Pharisees to kill him in order to wash away the sins of these people and invite them into the family of God. Jesus is a physician who isn't afraid of catching what they have because he brings healing. So yeah, he's eating with the sinners and he's going to for all eternity. And that's the party that I want to be at. Don't you? So that's the first narrative. We're going to look at the second. So let's continue reading in verses 18 through 20. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they can't fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. We don't know exactly why the Pharisees were fasting, but the main times that Jews would fast would be at times that they were remembering and mourning either over sins of the people or disasters from the past. And one of the biggest times that they would fast would be around the time that they would remember the anniversary of when the original temple that Solomon built was destroyed. And that was 586 BC, a long time before Jesus. So the Pharisees are basically asking, why don't you fast and observe this holy day? And Jesus' answer is interesting. He says, why would my disciples fast while the bridegroom is here? So he's talking about a party again. He's talking about a wedding feast. And if you think about it, why would you fast at a wedding feast? And especially, you don't want to fast at a Jewish wedding feast. Because in the first century, when Jesus was alive, a Jewish wedding feast lasted a week. It was quite a party. That's not the week you want to pick to fast. If you think about it, we, most of us, kind of like wedding receptions. We love them because there's good food and there's drinks and there's dancing and somebody else paid for it, right? (laughs) But there's more to celebrate on those days than just free food. We're celebrating this mysterious union where two people come together and make a covenant before God and become one. But if Jesus is the groom, then we're talking about the greatest wedding feast of all time when Jesus takes us, the church, to be his bride. There won't be any fasting at that feast. But I want you to think about it this way. The temple, the temple that Solomon built, the temple that was destroyed in 586 B.C., That was the place that God's glory dwelled. That was the place that marked God's presence. And that's why it was so devastating to the Jews that it was destroyed. But here is Jesus, God in the flesh, who has come to dwell among them and even sit with them and eat. So how can you mourn and fast when the very presence of God is with you? 
I'm sure a lot of you have been to like Disney or Universal or something like that when they're working on a new ride. They always have a big wall up so that you can't see the construction behind it. And on the wall, there'll usually be like some signs and logos and symbols kind of pointing toward what's to come. You don't get like a full blueprint, but it, it shows like, oh, there's something Star Wars coming or ooh, there's something Transformers coming here. But then when the ride comes in, they tear the wall down because they don't need it anymore because the real thing, the big ride is right there in front of you. But the Pharisees can't see the ride at all because they're still looking for the wall. But someone greater than the temple is here. And to put it the way maybe Kesha would, Jesus says, the party don't stop till I walk out. (laughs) But then he adds something ominous. He says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in that day. And this is the first time in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus points forward to his death. He points toward the day that he would show all mankind just how much he loves the sinners and the tax collectors and the leper and the outcast. And I bet that even the disciples didn't get how much that meant on that day, but I don't want us to miss it. Right before the sermon during the offering, the worship team played a song called Reckless Love. And that term reckless could be offensive if you take it to mean careless or unintentional. But if you really think about it, what's the fear of being reckless? You could get yourself killed. But that's the kind of love that Jesus had for sinners and outcasts and the broken. The kind of love that got him killed. But death could not contain Jesus. And the temple could not contain Jesus. A building from 600 years ago could not contain him. The old can't contain the new. In verses 21 and 22, Jesus says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one points, sorry, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So what is he saying? The old has to make way for the new. As new wine ferments, it needs to expand and it needs room to grow. And if you put new wine that's still fermenting into old stretched out skins, it's going to burst. And Jesus' point is this. It's not a time to cling to old traditions. It's a time to get on board with the new thing that God is doing right in your midst. If you're only looking behind, you'll miss what's ahead. And in their case, it was the very son of God. So grown-ups in the audience, I want you to think, if you grew up in the church Think what church was like. Think how much it's changed. Church culture has changed. Church buildings have changed. The way we dress has changed. The songs that we sing has changed. Even the way that we read the lyrics for the songs has changed. But what hasn't changed is that God has been moving in it all along. 
and the church has always been the bride of Christ. The Apostle Paul, Paul warns us in Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. As we look to the future in our country and in the church, and especially here at Orangewood, as we anxiously await God to call a new pastor, may we depend on Christ rather than on human tradition. We may have to throw out some of the old wineskins, but it's okay because God is making new wine. And kids, you don't have to be 21 to drink God's new wine. It's for everybody. Now we're going to look at the third story, the third narrative. Let's read verses 23 to 28. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain, and the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it's not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Back in the summer when we were doing our R&R series, I preached a sermon on the Sabbath called Remain and Recreate. Um, and if you want to learn more about the Sabbath, uh, that's one way you could do it if you wanted to listen to that. But we found that there are two purposes for the fourth commandment. Sabbath is a celebration of God's work of redemption and a celebration of God's work of creation. And of course, we can celebrate those things in Christ also. So I have an actual picture of a grain field in Galilee that I want you to see here. So... Jesus and the disciples were probably walking someplace like this. Now, I want you to picture this. John 1.3 tells us that all things were made through Jesus. So when I picture Jesus walking through a grain field on the Sabbath with his disciples, I picture his hands touching the wheat as he walks by and plucking one up and looking at the intricacies. And I'm imagining him reminiscing and thinking, I remember when we first made up the idea of wheat, to have this little wire that grows out of the ground and it would be used to feed people and animals all over the world. And he looks around on the, Jesus, on the Sabbath and Jesus sees his disciples in his own creation plucking the grain and eating it and enjoying it. And then... He's kind of disturbed from his little daydream by the nagging party poopers that say, look, why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? I imagine that's what they sounded like. <laughs> There's nowhere in scripture that says that you can't pluck grains of head, uh, pl pluck heads of grain on the Sabbath. Um, the Pharisees here are talking about their own oral laws again. So the fourth commandment just says, remember the Sabbath and don't do any work. But the Pharisees went the extra mile and split hairs over what's considered work and what isn't and what you can and can't do. And basically, the way they see it, if the disciples are eating the grain and they had to pluck it, 
they had to work for their food. So they're working on the Sabbath. And the funny thing is that Jesus doesn't tell them that their laws are stupid and that his disciples are fine to just go about their way, which is probably what I would have done because I'm not the perfect, righteous, compassionate son of God. Um, What Jesus did was he asked them a question in response. He said, have you never read what David did? And it's a funny question because he knows that they've read what David did. The story he's referring to comes from 1 Samuel 21. And in this story, King David was not yet recognized as the king of Israel, but he had already been anointed as the king of Israel. So think about that for a minute. But in this story, his best friend Jonathan warns him that he needs to flee because Jonathan's dad, the current king, is going to try to kill David. So David's on the run with all of his disciples and they go to the priest and they're like, do you have some bread for us? And he's like, I don't have any common bread. I just have this holy bread, the bread of the presence. And they eat it. And David wasn't a priest, so he wasn't supposed to eat it. So why was he allowed to eat it? Because he was God's anointed. He was God's anointed king. Jesus was making the same point about himself. Jesus is God's anointed king. That's what Christ means. It means anointed one. It's a royal term. But like David, Jesus isn't recognized as king yet. So the Pharisees have gone and taken a day for celebrating God and his creation and redemption, and they've made it about restrictions and rules. But Jesus in 28 says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. How does he know? Because he was there when the Sabbath was made. No one knew what the Sabbath was for better than Jesus did. The Sabbath is too big to fit in their old wineskins. In Jesus, we have one who's greater than the temple. We have one who's greater than David. So does Jesus observe the Sabbath? You bet he does. He's Lord of the Sabbath. But if you're going to go to someone's house for dinner, you want to go to Jesus' house because it's going to be a celebration of God's creation and redemption. And it's not going to be like one of those boring Pharisee parties. It'll be a true celebration, big enough for all who will come. We've got one more narrative to look at. So I don't want to lose you. It's getting that time, right? I see everybody's like starting to stretch. This is our last narrative. Jesus is going to tick off the Pharisees on the Sabbath one more time. Look at this. Chapter three, verses one through six. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. He's not out in the grain fields anymore. He's back in the synagogue in the big city of Capernaum and the Pharisees are there. And the Pharisees who are seen as the spiritual authorities are wanting Jesus to mess up. In verse three, it says, Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Now, he poses a question to the nagging party poopers. They haven't quit nagging him this whole time, but now that he asked them a question, they're silent. In James 4.17, 
It says, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. I want you to think about that. If you know the right thing to do and you don't do it, it's sin. So is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good? It is. And to fail to do good on the Sabbath would be a sin. So Jesus is faced with a a choice to be liked, to be accepted, to be seen with favor by the authorities, or to do the thing that he knows is right, but would make him despised by the in crowd. And in verse five, it says he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Jesus brought life where there had been none. Jesus brought hope to this man where there had been none. Jesus showed himself to be greater than the temple, greater than David, And greater than the Pharisees, he showed them by the power of his word to heal who the real spiritual authority was. But even as he did this, he was grieved at the Pharisees' hardness of heart. Because after he brought life and hope and faith to this man, the Pharisees met to figure out how they could destroy the Son of God. And who did they meet with? The Herodians, the very people that they saw as traitors to the Jews. And what day did they do it on? They did it on the Sabbath. So Jesus' question becomes more poignant. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or kill? And the important question that we're all faced with this morning is, who am I in these stories? Are you one of the tax collectors, someone who's making a decent living but realizes that there has to be something more than this booth? Jesus is calling, follow me. What do you say to Jesus' invitation? Are you the man with a withered hand so desperate for hope that you'd do almost anything? Jesus says, come, stretch out your hand. Do you dare to believe that Jesus has what it takes to heal what's broken in you? Maybe you're one of the sinners. Maybe you're one of the people who would say that you're a follower of God but you don't actually do anything to show it. There's nothing in your life that you can point to that would say otherwise. Jesus cries, follow me. Will you follow him to a feast and see what it really means to be a follower? Or are you a Pharisee who knows the law and keeps the law and calls out other people for breaking the law and who's so convinced of your perfect law keeping that you don't think you have any need of a physician. I can tell you that I've been all of these things at different points in my life. And if I take a real hard look at my heart, 
most of the time, it's easiest for me to see the Pharisee in me. I often think that I get it. I get the gospel. My way is right. But people don't need to do things my way. People need Jesus. And I need Jesus. And you need Jesus. And looking down on people, shaming them for breaking the rules, isn't very compelling. But you know what it is? Inviting them to a party. They may hear that. To celebrate creation and redemption, to eat the bread of life and drink new wine with Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life of the party. The party don't stop till Jesus walks out and Jesus is never, ever, ever, ever going to walk out. He's calling each of us this morning. He's calling, follow me. And it requires a response. So I ask you, will you follow him? Will you follow him this morning? Christian, will you follow him? Non-Christian, will you follow him? What does it mean for you this morning to follow him? When we get to that wedding feast, we're probably going to be surprised who shows up. We're going to be surprised at the tax collectors and the sinners and the broken and the outcast and even the Pharisees that we're seated next to. So let's go follow Jesus, the rabbi, the bridegroom, the eternal king, and let's invite all of our friends and all the sinners and all the outcasts. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you call the sick because we are all sick and in need of you. Thank you so much that you don't call the righteous because no one here is righteous. Thank you, Lord, that because of who you are, of your perfect life, of your perfect sacrifice, your righteousness is now counted as ours. For those of us who have faith in Christ Jesus, we rejoice, Lord, in what looks foolish in the eyes of the world. May we keep being disciples no matter what the cost to our reputation, no matter how foolish it may make us look. Let us follow you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.